Hey everyone, welcome to Tales from the Pros, and this is Michael Giorgio, your host and co-founder of Imagine Ovation. My special guest with me here today is Margaret Malloy, who is the Global Chief Marketing Officer at Siegel & Gale, a world-renowned strategic branding and design firm. She oversees new business, sales and marketing, and is one of the most visible CMOs on social media today. A strategic marketer with a tech DNA, she has a 20-year track record as a business-to-business growth instigator achieved by uniting brand building and demand generation. Margaret was also awarded the 2017 B2B Marketer of the Year by The Drum. This is Tales from the Pros, where business leaders and influencers share their stories of inspiration, struggles, and successes. And I'm your host, Michael Giorgio. Margaret, thank you so much for being with me here today. I really, really appreciate your time. Hello, Michael. How are you? I'm doing I'm doing great. It's Friday. I'm happy. Ready for the weekend. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Well, it's a beautiful day here in New York. Awesome. I'm assuming it's uh it's probably getting pretty uh hot up there, right? It's it's definitely getting it's getting quite warm down here in North Carolina. <laughs> I bet. And it's a far cry from where I grew up for sure. And and you grew up so I, I know you're uh I, I mean I, I definitely see you as a as a um, Irish thought leader and also a thought leader in, in marketing, but how did tell me a little bit about about your uh, your growing up and and were you originally in uh, from I you know born and raised in Ireland? Yeah, that's right, Michael. I was born and raised in rural Ireland. I grew up on a farm. Okay, the eldest of six children, uh, first generation high school graduate, first generation college graduate. And came to America after graduating college. I've always been a marketing and uh, business major. Spent a number of years working for the Irish government, promoting Ireland as a location for foreign direct investment. I then went to the Harvard Business School, did my graduate work there, and spent a decade or so after working for technology companies, American-founded companies like Siebel Systems that was subsequently acquired by Oracle. And today I find myself at Siegel and Gale. As you mentioned kindly in the intro, we are one of the world's leading brand strategy and design consultancies. And in that capacity, I have the opportunity and pleasure to work with some extraordinarily creative and strategic professionals and also find myself as a, an ear to many of indeed my peers at the world's leading brands and helping them understand their challenges and potentially find pathways to success. Fantastic. Margaret, were you always, uh, uh, were you always kind of a, uh, uh, a thinker in regards to marketing? Did you always have that? Did you always have a passion for marketing since you were little or did that kind of come later? I was always interested in marketing because for me, it represents that gorgeous blend of creativity and analysis. And I find the opportunity to combine those two capabilities very gratifying. I'm fortunate, I suppose, in that I have found a career that lets me use probably all of my muscles and stretch quite a bit. Right. And um, therefore, marketing for me is just a wonderful career and one that I would recommend very highly to others. 
growing up, I probably didn't have the vocabulary to understand the role, but I did have the intuition that I liked a career in business and specifically at the client side of the business and marketing affords that opportunity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and Margaret, just you being as a, you know, very successful CMO and, and dealing with uh, essentially world-renowned brands, in your expert opinion, what is the true role of a CMO in an organization? Because I, you know, I'm a CMO in my company as well, and and I I see CMOs doing a lot of different things, and I even I, you know I, we deal with a lot of startups as well, and and they'll say CMO, but they're really doing a lot of different things and not really to, related to marketing. So if you can kind of uh, give more uh, uh, insight onto onto really the uh, the ID, the the DNA, the the background of a CMO and their true role. Certainly. And I think the premise of your question is very interesting. Arguably, the CMO is the least consistent role across the C-suite. It is very much context dependent. It depends on the size of the organization, whether the company is B2B or B2C, and frankly, the degree to which marketing is the center of gravity or the periphery of an organization. So I say that by way of preface, because unlike many of our peers who have more structured and more consistent definition of role, the CMO is really quite a varied job. Having said that, I believe almost independent of organization that there are at least three important dimensions to the role of CMO. For me, the first part is the CMO as driver of growth. I believe the CMO must set a clear vision for business performance. And once that vision is clear, then setting out on the execution. This is a growth-oriented role. The second dimension, I would say, is the CMO must be what I would call a culture carrier. And what I mean precisely by that is the CMO must understand an organization's purpose, embody that purpose, and then inspire colleagues across the organization to live the purpose. So essentially, the insight here is not just inspire the marketing team, but inspire every colleague in the organization to live the culture. And the third component, and this one may surprise you a little, Michael, but I believe the job of the chief marketing officer is also to be the chief simplifier. There are so many possibilities from a communications perspective, from a customer engagement standpoint, even product development that an organization can explore. And I firmly believe that great CMOs are also great simplifiers. They help make choices for their company. And those choices are guided by a deep understanding of the customer journey. If they represent the voice of the customer, they then can bring that perspective to life in their organizations by imposing that skill of simplification. So in sum, the CMO is a very varied role. It is absolutely not homogenous. But the three dimensions of success are business driver, culture carrier, and simplifier. 
I love those elements that you explained. And, and Margaret, you know, I've, I've noticed that at least in my experience, the, the CMOs deal a lot with, uh, you know, the, the sales teams as well. Obviously we know Mark, you know, the uh, marketing and sales are, are, you know, they tie into each other. And, and do you, do you feel the CMO should be, and you mentioned business performance a hundred percent, but do you feel they should be dealing a lot with the sales teams as well? Or is that kind of separated? I believe the CMO is the growth engine for a company because they are custodian of the brand. Now, having said that, organizational structure may vary based on what's prudent for a particular organization. So in some situations, like here at Siegel & Gale, new business rolls up into the CMO. In other organizations, it makes sense for those functions to be independent. But irrespective of the organizational framework, what is absolutely imperative is sales and marketing alignment. Because without that, you are wasting resources at best or at worst, creating dissonance in your audience where sales is communicating one message and marketing is another. And that's both resource constraining, but also brand deteriorating for an organization. I think that's so true. Uh, I love what you said about alignment. I think the sales and marketing teams definitely have to be aligned in regards in regards to the goals and things being done, strategies. Um, and I think the the more aligned they both are, this going to lead to more more you know revenue and sales generated for the company. And and um, they're just basically all going to be on the same page. And and I, I love what you said about that. So going a little bit um, when you mentioned uh, Margaret about simplicity, uh, and I know you talk a lot about this is in regards to simplicity and removing the clutter from brands and companies, can you explain more of the common clutter that you experience? I I certainly can, but I do want to offer a clarification based on the prior question, because although I am an absolute proponent of sales and marketing alignment, there is an important and healthy tension between the two functions. And it would be remiss of me not to recognize that. And that is marketing has a dual function. Marketing on the first part is around generating sales for sure. And that can have a short-term orientation. But marketing, when it's done well, and the CMO, when they are at their best, are also brand building for the long term. And that is the tension that can exist between a CMO, even if they have sales rolling up to them, or between a CMO and a chief revenue officer. It's that duality between the short term and the long term. So great CMOs have to be servants of both the short term and the long term and employ data as well as very refined intuition to help make choices that optimize over those different time periods. Now, having said that, to address your 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 next question around simplicity and clutter, yeah. I would say there are many opportunities for clutter. And we at Siegel and Gale do a lot of research into understanding customer behavior. We also research very deeply simplicity. And we've learned from our customers and also from our multi-thousand person annual study that consumers value simplicity. Very specifically, people 
I prefer to talk to customers and reference them as people because that helps frame our analysis. People are willing to spend more for simpler experiences. They are also more loyal to brands that afford them simplicity. And the stock market awards companies who offer simpler experiences. So when we look at brands, we have a very robust study called the World's Simplest Brands, and your listeners can find that out on the Siegel and Gale website. And we evaluate hundreds of brands across nine markets around the world. And we ask consumers to rank these brands in terms of their simplicity. And consistently, we see patterns. But those three patterns are really important. The brands who perform best in the simplicity index have the highest stock market performance. Consumers are willing to pay more for their experiences with those brands. So they command a price premium. And they are more likely to recommend them. So that's essentially the business case for simplicity, or as we like to say at Siegel and Gale, simplicity pays. Now that begs the question of where do you go for simplicity? And I would begin by defining it. Simplicity for us happens at the intersection of clarity and surprise. You must provide clear, transparent, congruent communications with your customers, but you also need to leave some room for that aha moment for discovery. And I think when we spend time with brands, working with them to get to simplicity, there are essentially three different phases. Sometimes it begins with arguably good housekeeping understanding the customer journey, specifically where there are opportunities in that journey to simplify. One good example can be a lot of companies do a poor job of what we call product architecture or listing their products and being really clear on which products solve which problems for their customer. The next opportunity can be around using design, whether it's color or visual aids to help customers navigate their experience. And the third one is a little more advanced, which is that creating surprise and excitement. But all three of those opportunities from uh, clearer communications, using plain language, to making it easy to navigate the website, to making sure that every employee knows what the brand stands for, not just the employees in marketing, such that When a consumer interacts with your brand, the marketing message is consistent with their experience. And then these higher order simplicity experiences like a brand saves you time or a brand anticipates your needs in a way that removes anxiety. They are higher order needs. But as we know ourselves, and I'm sure you do too, Michael, from our own experience as consumers... The antithesis of simplicity isn't really complexity, it's anxiety. Brands that make us anxious, that frustrate us, are prime candidates for simplification. I love love your your insight on simplicity. Um, I I feel that, you know, what you mentioned is so true, Margaret, because the even the, the clients that we deal with as well, I've noticed that when we ensure that for example design that's a good example right when design is is very intuitive and it's uh aligned with with um the way the customer beha- like you mentioned the, your 
you're understanding the data behind the customer, the way that the customer behavior, right? Um, and you use that data to create simple experiences, um, like on a design perspective, they're going to pay more for that. And I think some, I think a lot of companies forget that. Um, you know, I've, I've just seen, I've dealt with so many different businesses and things like that. And I've just noticed that there's so much clutter in different experiences and, and design's a great example, but the, the simpler that you keep it and the, the more intuitive it is, like the user experience of that design, the more simpler it is, they're going to pay more for that. Uh, I think that's very vital and important for people to understand. So I, I love your um, uh, just the inspiration and insight on, on simplicity and, and how much you, you back that. So thank yeah. you for sharing all that. Well, thank you for that. And it, it has some intuitive appeal, simplification, but frankly, it's very difficult. Mm-hmm. And in our experience, it must come from the top much like any important initiative, it needs CEO approval and buy-in. And then, so that's the first insight. The second insight is it's not a one and done situation. Simplicity is not a destination, it's a journey. And the third component is it requires discipline. It's hard work to simplify. It's easier to pile on than to edit. Uh, easier. Who was it that said, if I had more time, I'd write a shorter letter? That's the sort of the philosophy that underlines true simplification. I love that. Thank you for sharing all of that. Really, really appreciate that. I think people are going to find that very valuable. So Margaret, uh, you know, just giving some detail, can you explain your strategies or insight on how to assemble? uh, And I think you might've answered this a little bit, but on, on just your strategies and insight on how to simplify a brand and the way they portray themselves to the public eye. Certainly. And I, I touched on that a moment ago. There are definitely yep. dimensions of it. Mm-hmm. Um, opportunities include the use of plain language, the use of design to reinforce communications, the depth of understanding of the customer experience and using data to truly understand customers. And another component that's vitally important and often overlooked is observation, actually working with your customer, observing your customer and finding essentially points of friction in their journey. So I would reiterate those points, but I would also say that at Siegel and Gale, we study simplicity from many angles. And one of the things that we enjoy doing is talking to brand leaders at companies that we believe are striving forward as it relates to simplicity. So I have the privilege of hosting a series and writing blogs with executives that we call simplifiers. And in anticipation of this conversation, I sat back and said, are there habits or behaviors that these executives that we call simplifiers exhibit that we can all learn from? And a number of things came to mind, Michael. I think the first habit that simplifiers have is that they are very committed to process, but they welcome creative freedom. And one of the examples of one of my personal favorites is Zappos. So Zappos, in my mind, is a powerful example of a company whose leadership habitually empowers employee creativity yet it scales through defined processes. And they do this often by creating small teams. 
they hire professionals who share the values of the company and they empower those professionals to service the customer. So that's a really good model. They observe process, they have well-defined processes, but within that framework, they also offer their employees and reward creativity. Another defining characteristic of simplifiers is they have a quest to be useful to their customers. So utility is something that drives them. A good example of this is the Dollar Shave Club. So the Dollar Shave Club started as essentially providing shaving blades and what have you for people. Now, that was a pretty saturated market and one might argue a pretty commoditized product. And while others in the category were spending resources on improving the blade technology, if you will, the folks at Dollar Shave Club decided to innovate around the periphery. And they decided that it would be useful to their customer not to make the blade that much better because that was only a marginal improvement, but rather to make it easier, to be useful, to make it easier for the customers by essentially creating a subscription-based model. So that mindset was really interesting. They didn't focus on making marginal innovation to the core product. Rather, they focused on how they could be useful. And the third behavior or mindset that I would highlight for these people is they are fact-based, but they're not pedantic. So they have numbers. They measure the different points of interaction holistically with the customers, and they use those numbers to inform resource allocation. I, I think that's very powerful. So while intuition is a useful asset, these folks don't rely on intuition. They are very fact-based. And finally, uh, a behavior of simplifiers that we find really interesting is that they are humble, never arrogant. So they don't talk down to their customers. They use simple language for clarity, not to condescend. And I think if we look at these behaviors and apply them to every organization, They offer opportunity to get to simplicity. Now, how those behaviors manifest in one organization will be different from another. But the fundamental mindsets, I think, have universal appeal for any brand that's in a quest to simplify. Yeah, well, thank you so much for sharing that, Margaret. You know, all that is uh, very great insight onto the simplification of a brand and and. Oh, and you know, I, I I think about you know when I'm sure you've heard a lot about this, Margaret. Is when you think of brand, or when some people think of branding, they think of just the logo or corporate identity. But you know, it's you mean you both know that's not true. There's so much more to branding, right? Than than the logo. So when so- someone says, "Oh, I, I want to simplify my brand," it's not just the logo. The logo is only a small little piece of that. Is that correct? I think that's a very useful reminder for all of us, Michael, that the identity is a component of branding. You know, it's interesting when you look at the power of brands. I would offer to you that those of us in brand marketing and indeed in any leadership roles, today as we go about building brands, we should be thinking about building movements, not monuments. Mm. So when you talked about brand as a logo, that's really analogous to an art form, 
a monument, if you will, a static identity. I'm suggesting yes. that in our era, brand builders are individuals or organizations that are building movements. And this movements is defined by co-creation, co-elevation, others getting behind your vision or your purpose. And of course, the uh, aesthetic component is a useful and powerful component, but it's not the end. And that's where brands are going today. They're going from monuments to movements. I love that. I love, I love, I love that, uh, that quote that you just mentioned. Um, I, I haven't thought, I thought of it that way, but that's, that's great. And, and Margaret, when you execute in, in your expert opinion, when you execute a brand and marketing strategy for your clients, what is your insight on including the customer journey experience? You mentioned customer journey a few times. What's your insight on including the customer journey experience as well as storytelling? Certainly. Well, let me touch on the customer journey first. For us at Siegel and Gale, it's vitally important to understand the customer experience at every stage in the journey, because if we don't appreciate that, then we are not equipped to help our customers identify which stage represents the most opportunity for simplification. So we have developed proprietary tools that really go deeply into understanding at which point in a customer up cycle is there opportunity to improve the brand experience. Simplicity could be a part of it. There could be other brand elements to it. So we're, we're deeply entrenched in understanding. And the reason for that is very simple. No client that we have ever worked with has infinite resources. Every marketer, no matter how large the organization, has finite time and budget. So the opportunity is to identify where on the journey can you drive the most impact. So you must understand the journey and the trade-offs that are made at each stage to help prioritize budget allocation. So it's a critical part. And frankly, we touched earlier on the role of the CMO. I would say that is probably one of the most important opportunities for success for a CMO to deeply understand the customer journey and therefore represent in a very robust fashion the customer's voice. As it pertains to storytelling, I would come back to the movements idea that we talked about a moment ago and offer to you the suggestion that today it's less about storytelling and more about story building. And I don't intend that to be cute or to just be semantic. Right. What I mean by story building is the organization or the brand, our job is to put an idea into the market, an idea that will take fire, an idea that will captivate the imaginations of our customers and other constituents. Essentially, they will build on that idea, reinforce it, personalize it. So the days of broadcast media are long gone when the controlling marketer crafted beautiful language and put that out to the world to varnish and essentially spend so much of their time around governance. 
Today, no. Today, it's mm -hmm. about putting around an idea that will inspire others to take it forward. So to me, that metaphor of movement applies here if we think of story building as distinct from merely storytelling. And, and uh, Margaret, have, have uh, Siegel and Gill, you guys have dealt with uh, funded uh, companies as well, not not just, for example, I know you've dealt with large brands, but have you also dealt with startups and funded uh, startups or bootstrap startups as well? Oh, certainly. Yeah. Um, and, you know, a lot of the same lessons apply that we've talked about already. Perhaps another is worth mentioning, though, which is the role of naming. So at Siegel and Gale, we have 10 professionals and all they do every day is naming. They name products, they name organizations, they spend time thinking about the nomenclature of a company and how its products meet the world. And that is, in the context of early stage companies, a very important branding opportunity. I often think about when I was in uh, grad school and Amazon began, one of the companies that I personally admire most. And if you think back, had they called themselves Books R Us or something very category specific like that, might they be the force they are in our lives today? And I use that just as an illustration of the importance of a name. We think of it as your name is the first word in your story. And I would offer that to early stage companies. Are you thinking hard enough about your naming? Are you seeking truly professional expertise as you identify the most important word in your story? And perhaps most significantly, is the name ambitious enough? Is it matching your ambition? Will it stretch? So that's an area that we haven't talked about already in the conversation, but I think is mm -hmm. very useful for earlier stage companies to invest in getting expert input into. And that, that you know, that's perfect because it that ties into my question in regards to when I mentioned funded or organically bootstrap um, startups or early stage companies. How should they essentially keep their business quote unquote simple? and execute an effective brand strategy because I've noticed Margaret, you know, the startups that we've dealt with as well is that in regards to technology, not branding, they want to do so much, right? They, a lot of these early stage companies or these startups, they want to, it's so easy to, to complex their, uh, to, to complicate their, their, um, technology, uh, their product or their marketing or brand strategy. It's so easy for them because they're so new. So with Siegel and Gale, I'm sure you guys, simplify the heck out of uh, out of these early stage companies. Can you give us some insight insight on on that? Yeah, it's interesting. I would offer two perspectives. The first one is in our experience the startups have an advantage over legacy companies. Because most of the companies today if we think about the so-called disruptors from Airbnb to Uber and even Dollar Shave those kinds of companies start from the principle that they see opportunity to simplify something. They often use vocabulary like to remove friction from a process, which is sort of Silicon Valley speak for simplification. Mm 
So many of the highly successful companies start from a place of simplicity. It's interesting for us, we take inspiration from those companies when we work with legacy brands. So that's that's the first thing. The, sec- yeah. the second thing is sort of the practicality of inherently startups or earlier stage companies are in experiment mode and they need to learn or as they call it fail fast improve and uh, essentially define their business model as they go for us there are components that we counsel them to take seriously i mentioned naming and i'll touch on another which is purpose to be really clear on why they exist in the world beyond the obvious make money and return shareholder value or or investor uh, value, being really thoughtful about what is their purpose, because that is the reason why companies will get great employees. And the war that a lot of these earlier stage companies is fighting is not about funding. There's lots of money. It's talent. And to the extent that they can articulate a compelling purpose, that is something that will stand the test of time. And that's something we work with those types of companies to help them be ambitious around. And Margaret, I'm sure, you know, we all face different, uh, different struggles and and challenges, obstacles. And and in your experience, what do you feel are some of the toughest branding or marketing struggles that you or, or even Siegel and Gale face with brands and how do you overcome them? Maybe a few examples. Or- Certainly. One of the challenges we find with brands is in it happens when they are uh, doing a rebranding or standing up a new company from a split or a merger or acquisition. So companies in those business transitions often call on Siegel and Gale to help them articulate a new brand purpose, design a new identity, and create new experiences. So that's a very typical scenario, mergers, Mm -hmm. acquisitions, and splits. So with that as a backdrop, one of the challenges we've observed is Companies run out of resources at one of the most important stages. That is the employee activation stage of a new brand. And when I say resources, I mean budget, time, even energy and enthusiasm. So much of the intensity is spent on articulating the purpose, thinking about customers, thinking about the new visuals, but not spending or dedicating enough time and budget and energy to engaging the employees. And we consider that unfortunate because the employees are at the forefront of most brands, whether it's the employee in the call center or even the employee who's making the decisions around what products to include, what features to include in the tech world. They, although behind the scenes, they are influencing the customer experience. So that's a challenge. Often the misunderstanding that branding or rebranding is just about the employees. In the B2B world, one of the populations that's often neglected, which we think is a shame, are the salespeople. Because the sales organization often has real candid perspective 
on the customer's pain points. And there's opportunity to learn from that population as companies go about rebranding, but also really important to make sure that they are aware of new branding. They're aware when a new story comes to market, so they're not miscommunicating it to the buyers. So that's that's um, an, an important missed opportunity and challenge for organizations. And then the other one is the perhaps obvious, but worth mentioning reality that brands are not one and done. You have to think about the activation and having a plan for rolling out a brand and reinforcing it and the need for repetition and the need for making sure that the promise you're making matches the customer experience. Brands are no longer just words and pictures. It's the experience. And that's the evolution. The customer experience and the employee experience need more attention in our estimations. I think it's very powerful, Margaret. What you mentioned about employees, uh, some of the uh, some other interviewees uh, that I've I've uh, I've had on this show, they've mentioned this a few times that paying attention to um, what, what what really makes some of these uh, companies so successful and and really getting to the next level is is putting your employees first. Obviously, we know customers are are vital for our business, right? But employees, that's what's internal. They're they're the ones that are running the company. Um, and and as you mentioned, having a, a uh, like you mentioned before, having an alignment with sales and marketing is is very important. Um, getting insight from these salespeople um, in regards to um, the pain points uh, that they that they uh, understand and experience from their customers because they are the ones that are dealing with the customers and and working with them and closing them um, and becoming those long term clients. And I think that's very very important. And um, I hope people can can understand that is is really um, having that that strong culture within the company and um, putting your employees first. And uh, I just think that's so important. And I'm experiencing that with my company as well. So thank you so much for sharing that. Certainly, for sure. And just one of the, uh, the, the last uh, questions here, uh, Margaret, like, do you have any specific thoughts and advice on future leaders in general to help improve their brand and provide the most value to their customers? Certainly. I would offer three quick nuggets of advice. First is start with a clear purpose. And purpose essentially is the difference you try to make in the world. Why you as an organization do what you do. Second thing is remember that brand is not solely about the aesthetic. You have to focus on the experience. Aspire to building brands that are movements not monuments. And the third one is actively manage your brand. Your brand is a really important asset. Ask yourself, are you giving the right amount of resource to your brand? Is the brand the seat at the table? Are you spending as much resource on managing your brand as you are on managing your financial assets? keeping in mind that for many public companies, a huge component of their valuation in the stock market can be attributable to intangible assets. Yet, typically, the CFO has a higher share and has more resources and more mind share than the CMO. 
So those would be the three aspects of advice I would offer for executive leadership. Fantastic, Margaret. Thank you very much. And those last three final, uh, I call them the three hows. I ask every uh, every person that, that comes onto the show. So in, in the quick, quickest way possible, how would you define failure? How would you define business? And how would you define success? So, Michael, I'm going to have some fun with you now because okay. Okay. I'm Irish, like we said at the beginning. So I'm going, <laughs> So we Irish like our poets and our writers and others that we think are eloquent. So I'm going to try to have fun with this and maybe offer okay. you a quote rather than just rely on my eloquence. Perfect. So for me, failure is the first step on the path to success. And for this one, I'm going to draw on Samuel Beckett. Ever tried, ever failed. No matter. Try again, fail again, fail better. For business, I'm going to say that business is about solving the customer's need profitably. In business, execution, however, is the ultimate differentiator. And for this one, we'll go to Sam Walton. There is only one boss, the customer, and he or she can fire everybody in the company from the chairman on down simply by spending his or her money somewhere else. For success, like failure, success in my mind is not a destination. It's the continuous pursuit of an ambition. And I'll go back to an Irish poet for this one. William Butler Yeats said, do not wait to strike till the iron is hot, but make it hot by striking. So Michael, that was me having fun with you. No, I love it. I, I, I got goosebumps by all three of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's, that's, that's fantastic. I, I haven't, I don't think I've had uh, anyone on the show give quotes. So I always love a first timer. Um, I'm trying to remember. I don't think I've gotten quotes from from anyone else. They mostly just give their their opinions, well, which is fine too. But um, I love the different angle here. So we, it's perfect. That's how we roll at Siegel and Gale. We like to keep it fresh. <laughs> and you know, Michael, you, you go. got to have fun with it because if you don't have fun with it, what's the point? And and you know, going back to, I'm not going to quote this, but going back to kind of a um, what what Steve Jobs mentioned is. He said, when you're a business owner, when you're an entrepreneur, when you're starting something from nothing, he said that you, you have to have passion and joy in what you're doing. Because if you don't have passion and joy in what you're doing, you can't overcome those obstacles and struggles. We're almost, he said, we're almost kind of a crazy type of people because if we're, we have so much passion and drive and joy in what we're doing, we believe in what we're doing so much that those struggles and obstacles they don't mean much. They're just a little barrier to overcome. I like it. Um, I like it. And and uh, and Steve Jobs mentioned that. I thought that was very inspiring as well. So, but that's not quote unquote. It's just kind of a little roundabout of what he said. And I added a little bit. Excellent. To it, so. I love it. Well, thank you for the time, Michael. Really enjoy the conversation. Absolutely. And just one final thing, uh, Margaret. Where can everyone find you? Website, social media handles. At Margaret Malloy at Siegel Gale, SiegelGale.com. Uh, are all good places. And of course, LinkedIn. Okay, perfect. Well, Margaret, it was a, it was a true honor and pleasure. I'm, I'm humbled to have you on the show. And thank you so much for sharing your story and insight with, with us. And 
I'm really appreciative and, uh, and grateful for your time. So thank you so much. Our pleasure. Thank you so much, Michael. Okay. All right. Thanks again, everyone, for listening. And this is your host, Michael Giorgio on Tales from the Pros. And until next time. Thanks, guys.